Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Just to remind you, it's a week-long series on issues involving veterans, the transition to civilian life after military service, On Friday, we'll talk about women who were vets and their particular experiences. Today, all of our 10 o'clock hour is devoted to mental health of veterans, uh, to dealing with traumatic stress for those vets who returned from combat and are dealing with that in the aftermath of service. And we have a terrific panel of expert guests who are going to be with us throughout next hour. And I would urge you, if you are a veteran of military service, to join us in that conversation, to talk about things that maybe surprised you after serving and coming back to civilian life, positively or negatively. And and, uh, and help us as we talk through some of these important issues by sharing your personal experiences. That's coming up next hour on Air Talk. Well, I woke up this morning, as so many of us did, to the news of that massive fire at the World War II era blimp hangar at the t- former Tustin uh, Air Base. Uh, those twin hangars, the north and south hangars, you could see all over central and north Orange County, just massive, uh, 15 stories tall structures and um, so sad to see the fire cause of which hasn't been determined that uh, has uh, destroyed much of that north hangar uh, probably necessitating that the rest would be would be torn down but uh, just a, a massive fire and uh, perhaps you you were awakened by it if you lived close to it because of how huge that fire was. A little bit later this hour, we'll talk with the author of Our Secret Society, Molly Moon, and the glamour, money, and power behind the civil rights movement. It's it's a story by historian Tanisha Ford about uh, how Molly Moon was not only an accomplished fundraiser, but someone who really linked high society of African Americans and white Americans in New York, how that was critical to the fundraising effort for civil rights activity. But we begin the program with a year-long investigation that was undertaken by the nonprofit news site Cal Matters, with whom we collaborate here at LAist 89.3 and on LAist.com. The year spent looking at what happened with California's Employment Development Department's meltdown when it got a crush of applications for COVID-19 relief. Joining us is Lauren Hepler, investigative reporter for CalMatters. Lauren, this is a massive journalistic project. First, congratulations on this. Thanks so much for having me and for reading. Uh, so how did you, first of all, get all the the documents and, and go back and investigate what the multiple failures were? How did you get access to all that? 
Well, Larry, I know we talked kind of in the thick of everything in 2020 as things were, it was clear things were starting to go wrong. Folks had stories about, oh my God, my debit card's cut off. My money's not getting here. So we had been kind of collecting things as they were happening in real time. And then about this time last year, we said, you know what, the dust has started to settle. Let's file a new round of public records requests. We filed a bunch of state and federal requests for emails, for contracts the EDD held, for financial records, and really tried to put those pieces together. We went through about 2,500 pages of records, I think, the last time I counted. That's astounding. Um, so uh, let's talk about the findings. First of all, on the technical side, which we we discussed this months ago, what was missing in the software and hardware available to EDD to process the claims? Well, one of the ironies that came out of this is it wasn't that there was necessarily so much missing. It was that there was too much happening. So Jennifer Palka, um, who's a tech expert and a founder of Code for America, she was part of this strike team that was creative to figure out what the heck was going on at EDD. She compared going through the EDD's computer systems to going on an archaeological dig. So you have these old systems from the 1980s that had been you know, held together with kind of like bubble gum as they built on in the 90s and the 2000s. And then after the Great Recession in the 2010s, and you ended up with this system where the pieces didn't talk to each other. And when you talk with claims workers who were on the phones with folks, they were saying I was having to jump between programs to try to figure out what was even happening with people's claims. And once you kind of understand that, it's like, well, it's no wonder that it, it became such a nightmare for folks to try to fix their claims in their cases. But this didn't raise its head just during the pandemic. There there had been um, audits, if I'm not mistaken. There have been previous reports about deficiencies within EDD. So why weren't those addressed before the crisis occurred? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of these exact same issues, the nine out of 10 calls to call centers not being answered, um, the low rates of timely payments, you see all of that happening more than a decade ago during the Great Recession as well. So one of the interesting findings was, okay, like EDD came out of that crisis and legislators came out of that crisis saying, we're going to fix these things. There were basic things like stop putting social security numbers on mail. And that just never happened. Um, the state said, we're going to go from paper checks to debit cards. And they did that, but then we know the debit cards created sort of a whole new set of issues. Um, so what the the whole picture, when you kind of take it together, uh, they failed to make promise reforms, and then new failures emerged this time around. We're talking with Lauren Hepler, investigative reporter for Cal Matters, LAist and Cal Matters, her editorial partners through the California Newsroom, which is a wide-ranging collaboration of nonprofit newsrooms here in California. Lauren, um, fraud detection is something, again, that was raised as an issue with EDD because there are all kinds of scams for various types of public benefits. And already there had been concern pre-pandemic about fraudulent unemployment filings. So, you know, what what was the promise to fix that even before we had the wide scale fraud that occurred during the pandemic? 
Yes, that was interesting to dig into. So I talked to some folks who work in the fraud investigations division at EDD, and they told me about this effort back again after the Great Recession in 2014, 2015, when there was this big focus on, you know, let's really shore up the systems at EDD. And they actually started working with a, a local fraud detection startup called Pondera Solutions. They're from the Sacramento area to use public and private databases to pick out, oh, you know what, this looks like a suspicious claim potentially coming from a prison. And we know incarcerated people are ineligible for unemployment. They would also look for things like overseas IP addresses or um, suspicious addresses or um, phone numbers that were showing up on lots of claims. Um, and this was really a centerpiece of the state's effort to say, look, we're modernizing, we're the home of Silicon Valley, we're going to be really innovative when it comes to our public benefit systems. Um, they they talked about it at conferences, and it was this whole big deal. And then all of a sudden, they pulled the plug in 2016. And the folks I've talked with in law enforcement and investigations just say, you know, that that now seems like a big mistake. It could have been huge to have something like that in place. Um, and the EDD ironically did go back and re-sign that contractor um, after things went sideways during the pandemic. Um, the EDD now says, you know, it's not reasonable to say that we should have expected a fraud crisis on the scale of the pandemic, but it certainly raises questions of, of why as fraud was exploding across all other industries, across banks and healthcare companies and all these things we know about, why wouldn't the state have been putting more safeguards in place? Well, and as you detail, you know, what, what was so bad about this is obviously the, the public funds uh, that were fraudulently obtained. But the other side of that were the delays for legitimate claims, people who needed that money desperately, who because of some glitch in, the, in their application had that, that held up. This was a two-sided tragedy. Absolutely. That's sort of the, the main question when I talk with workers or even with small businesses who like get caught up in this is just how was it that the so much money was squandered and given away to scammers while real people were left in really dire situations? We talked to people who lost their housing in one horrible case of a family's 28-year-old son took his own life while he was waiting for payments. Um, so you have that happening. And then at the same time, the scams are still getting through. Um, we now know that it seems like one of the most important things that was happening was a lot of claims, including a lot that turned out to be fraudulent, were sailing through an automated process. They were sort of getting rubber stamped and approved. And then about 40% of claims were getting put into this massive backlog. They were getting flagged for all kinds of things like, oh, you used your middle initial, not your full middle name, or your last name is too long for the system, um, or maybe there's a mismatched date on your employment history. And then you get put into this entirely separate category where you can just be waiting months and months for some sort of resolution. And Lauren, do we have a tally of, at this point, how much is believed was fraudulently obtained? Uh, by scammers and, and not recovered? I have to tell you, in talking with all of the state, federal officials, private fraud analysts, no one knows. So we have a range of estimates. Uh, the EDD first said up to $30 billion, and then they revised it down to $20 billion. Outside sources like LexisNexis say $32 billion. But the thing that's clear is no one has a very precise estimate. And that's true both in California and other states as well. Um, so one one of the big points, one of the big concerns folks said is, you know, if we still don't even 
understand how the money was lost and what the full kind of fallout from this was, you know, is history doomed to repeat itself? Lauren Hepler with us, investigative reporter for Cal Matters. We're talking about dysfunction within California's Employment Development Department during the pandemic era and uh, so many things that went wrong. Uh, you mentioned the, the Garden Grove young man who took his life. Lauren, uh, I was astounded. Nearly 500 calls were received by EDD call center operators during the pandemic period in which people threaten self-harm. I mean, that's, I know we're dealing with huge numbers of people who had problems with the system, but that's nearly 500 people who threatened to hurt themselves. Yeah, and of course, that's the folks who were able to get through. So during the pandemic, as few as one in 1,000 calls to California unemployment lines were answered, according to state reports. Um, so yeah, that that total is for the people who were able to get through. And when that happens, EDD employees are required to report threats of violence. So yes, they tallied 483 threats of self-harm and actually even more than that, 671 threats of violence against the agency oh, and wow. its personnel. So I think that really just shows how dire the situation was. Lauren, let's talk about the debit cards, because that was yet another fiasco. Bank of America had the exclusive contract for the debit cards. They were able to get the fees from the swipes on the on the debit cards. So what went wrong with that process? Yeah, that's a good question. So one thing we learned is just the amount of money that was flowing through that system. So Bank of America and the EDD split more than a half a, or nearly half a billion dollars in revenue from each time those cards were swiped during the pandemic, whether that was, you know, a legitimate worker or fraudulent is not always clear. Um, and the bank does say, you know, we ended up losing money on the deal because they then had to pay for the fraud costs um, when the fraud involved the actual debit cards. And really, to your question, there were a lot of things going wrong. So in some instances, the fraud, uh, the cards themselves were actually um, accessed by fraudsters. So they were maybe duplicated at a gas station or there were fraudulent ATM charges. And in cases like that, Bank of America was on the hook to, to cover those funds. Um, but in other cases, the bank has really pushed back to state legislators and said, look, you know, this wasn't our fault because a lot of people who should have never received benefits were getting through the front door at EDD and approved for money. Um, and so it just creates this situation where it's unclear who is who the legitimate workers get their um, cards in some cases frozen, fraudsters get through, and it just became chaos. One interesting point, though, I will say, Larry, is that we now know Bank of America, um, as they have long signaled as their intention, will be getting out of this deal with the state. So the EDD will soon be naming a new uh, provider who will be issuing both debit cards and eventually, we hear, finally, a direct deposit option for unemployment. Mm. Lauren, um, was it B of A's job to do the vetting? of the people or were they just a processor providing the cards um, for and and the funds allocated by the state for people to use it? Yes, that's that's a good point. So they they are just the payment contractor. Um, so their their executives said to state lawmakers, you know, um, 
it, it's up to the state to ultimately approve applications and determine eligibility requirements. We just are the ones who are ultimately printing the debit cards and mailing those out to folks. All right. Lauren, there's so much that's included in this multi-part series, all of it available today at calmatters.org. But um, I haven't obviously had a chance to ask you anywhere near uh, the depth of things that you have, but just something that I haven't asked you about that, that you think is important to raise about your investigation. I think the big question is what happens next. So Mm -hmm. the EDD is just getting started on a five-year, $1.2 billion overhaul. They say they're going to address some of these major issues like the call centers, the application process to make it less confusing. Um, And, you know, there's going to be a lot of workers, a lot of businesses, folks all around the state um, with a lot of writing on that. Lauren, again, congratulations. This is a massive piece of reporting that you've done. Thank you for sharing an overview of it with us, and I highly encourage AirTalk listeners to read each part of the series that you've done, available at calmatters.org. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Lauren Epler, investigative reporter for the nonprofit newsroom Cal Matters, which uh, works as an editorial partner with us through the California Newsroom and other nonprofit news organizations here in California. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3 coming up. A big U.S. Supreme Court case today on gun restrictions involving what are called red flag laws. We'll be talking with a pair of legal scholars about the significance of this case being heard today when we come back in one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, day two of our five day series on veterans. Today, the entire 10 o'clock hour is devoted to the mental health of those who served uh, in combat or non combat roles in the U.S. military. We have a quartet of experts who are going to be joining us, taking listener calls, sharing in some cases their personal experiences as vets returning and adapting to civilian life. That's all coming up next hour on Air Talk. But right now, we turn our attention to a U.S. Supreme Court case that was heard this morning by the justices. It's about domestic violence 
restrictions and uh, whether that should restrict an individual's ability to possess a gun. Joining us to talk about the case uh, from Pepperdine University School of Law, Associate Professor of Law and Second Amendment and Firearms Law expert Jacob Charles, also with us from Princeton University, Class of 1921, Professor in Legal History, Laura Edwards. Professor Charles, thank you very much for joining us. Just give us a thumbnail brief, please, on on what's at stake in this case. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, So, and as you said, in this case, the court is reviewing whether or not the federal government can prohibit firearm possession for a person who is subject to one of these domestic violence restraining orders that is issued in a state court proceeding. And the key question is, does the Second Amendment allow this consistent with what the court has said is its new test for Second Amendment cases that relies solely on whether or not there's a a historical tradition that is consistent with this kind of law? And it illustrates some of the problems with doing that when we're thinking about a problem like domestic violence that was treated much differently in the 18th century. Well, yeah, I was going to say because there was so little uh, enforcement historically up until recent times for domestic violence. And and so um, there wouldn't have even been consideration of it at, at the time the Constitution is drafted or the Bill of Rights. So how... Um, how does how is the court going to have to navigate something that doesn't fall neatly within uh, how this was considered at the time? Right. So the court is uh, confronting the question of um, what restrictions on classes of people are consistent with the historical tradition. And what the Solicitor General said in arguments defending the law was that there are two ways that the court could uphold these kind of restrictions. It could look to the principle of whether or not the person at issue was law-abiding. And it said that's supported by tradition. And so if you've committed a serious crime, like a felony offense, then the historical tradition supports prohibiting your access to firearms. The same thing the Solicitor General said for if an individual is not responsible, which she said the government understands to mean somebody uh, poses a danger uh, with firearms. And the historical principle there would say that the government can also remove firearms from from those uh, categories of people. And so what the court will have to do in this case is uh, either endorse these principles or uh, um, maybe adapt to these principles, but it's going to have to say something about what it understands the historical principle to show, because there is no direct analog to a uh, the to the federal law that prohibits firearm possession for those that are subject to these orders. I mean, domestic violence restraining orders themselves are relatively novel, yeah. and there weren't uh, there weren't regulations that were directly prohibiting firearm possession by those who are domestic abusers. Uh, Professor Charles, what about, um, does this case sidestep or is it going to directly deal with the nature of domestic violence restraining orders? Because obviously this is not, they're not issued in the same way that a criminal verdict is. It's mm-hmm. it's a judge going through a process that isn't at the level of depth as you would have in a full trial, for example. So is the court going to get to whether the standard, you know, and and maybe the side the judge is going to err upon for personal safety, whether that should be the standard for gun possession. 
Yeah, so I think the, the court is not going to directly rule on whether or not these kind of restraining orders with gun prohibitions are themselves okay. What it what it will say in this case is whether or not a federal law that is based on these underlying orders can prohibit someone from possessing guns. And and part of the arguments did revolve around these questions of due process um, that you uh, that you alluded to. And a, a few of the justices, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, um, were concerned about the fact that in a lot of these domestic violence restraining order proceedings, the defendant is not represented, um, that uh, sometimes they're not contested, and yet they can have these uh, these severe effects because they qualify for the federal prohibition. So the, the, the court is going to say something about whether or not the federal law can be based on these underlying orders, but it will not, in this case at least, invalidate the underlying orders themselves, even if, if they have firearm if, prohibitions. If the court were to overturn the federal prohibition on gun ownership, would states still be able to have their laws like California? It depends on how broadly the court rules. So it could rule that uh, the say the federal prohibition is too broad and that it allows too many kinds of orders to qualify. That wouldn't necessarily mean that um, all state laws, including California's laws, are themselves too broad. It might say that the courts uh, that are issuing these orders have to contain explicit findings that somebody is posing a credible threat in the imminent future to somebody else. And, and that might be the principle that the court looks to. So uh, a lot depends on how the court, how the justices write this opinion, but it wouldn't automatically call into question state laws like those in California. We're talking with Associate Professor of Law at Pepperdine Law School, Jacob Charles. His scholarship in this area is actually cited in a number of amicus briefs that were filed in this case. Also with us, the class of 1921 professor in legal history at Princeton University, Laura Edwards, professor. Edwards filed an amicus brief uh, in the case with a group of other historians. Professor, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. So I want to go back to what Professor Charles was talking about in in the the, uh, high court's previous case that there needs to be some sort of uh, setting this in in the historic context of when the Second Amendment was enacted. How do you see the court potentially getting there? What can be weighed in a case like this in a very different world? So I'm a historian primarily, and what's interesting here to me is the difference between the history as it is presented in a legal context, the legal profession, and the way historians see this history. So for instance, in the previous discussion, the presumption was that, in fact, domestic violence was not legally prosecuted in the founding era, and that's actually historically inaccurate. There was robust prosecution of domestic violence. It was done at the local level primarily. And it's difficult for us to comprehend now, I think, because there's entrenched narratives that we have about women's legal status. We assume that we're kind of at the high point of women's empowerment now, and the trajectory has been upward over time. So the further you go back in time, the more disempowered women were. And you see that in the oral arguments today and in the previous discussion where we're just assuming that women had little or no legal recourse against domestic violence in the past. And yet domestic violence was regularly prosecuted in the founding era. Marriage was seen as really central to the public order and therefore to sanction terror at the center of a foundational institution was considered to be really problematic. So legal officials regularly intervened on behalf of battered women 
um, the women brought these complaints, um, often in the same sort of way that is done now in civil proceedings. And then the husband was brought in on charges, criminal charges for assault, or even if it's just threats, they had to post a peace bond. Um, and the key thing here is it was an offense against the public order, not against the woman's body per se. But that meant the women had backing of the larger public, and it was seen as something that was not tolerated in this period. So in that sense, there is a direct analogy, and one that I think is being really overlooked, and one that we tried to bring up in the historian's brief. Now, yeah, at the time, though, uh, was there any um, overlap with with firearms regulation, if, if someone, for example, was under prosecution for an offense against the public for domestic violence historically, could they have their guns taken from them? Well, that's a really interesting question. And in some ways, it's the reverse. So what you would see um, when guns were involved is the gun wasn't taken away, but in fact, the person was disarmed in the sense of being disempowered. So there would be community regulation, supervision to make sure that that person did not offend again, or lacking the ability to post a peace bond, which then came with that supervision, people were jailed. So it wasn't a matter of the guns being taken away. It was a matter of the people being separated, the offender being separated from the guns, because you can't take your gun to jail. Um, and then also community supervision. Um, so this is the way it was done then at that time with the idea that the regulation of all kinds of violence was done locally and in a case-by-case -case basis, and there was robust regulation of that because it was seen as protecting the public interest. Now, was this um, pre-conviction pre you're talking about or only after the spouse was convicted? Yes, it's a good question. Um, a spouse, a woman, could bring in a complaint simply a complaint, much the case is now in the civil prosecutions. They bring in a complaint that she feared that she would be hurt and that would trigger the process. Um, and then if she had actually been injured, uh, then the charges would be assault, assault and battery, attempted murder, or in extreme cases, murder, in which case she obviously wasn't one bringing the case anymore. Um, so there were the criminal charges, but then there's also simply the threat to her body, which would also have been treated as an offense against the public order. So my understanding of of how the, the law is now is that it the threat doesn't have to be uh, against the spouse that a firearm would necessarily be used, uh, although that's that's probably implicit in many of these cases. But nonetheless, the the prohibition on gun possession would go into effect. With these historical laws, would it have to be tied to the threat being that that the spouse, uh, typically the the wife in these cases historically, would be victimized via firearm, or was it across-the-board violence against them? It's across-the-board violence, and this reflects a context issue. So today we are very focused on guns because guns are really very prevalent in domestic violence cases. In the past, the weapons that were used sort of span the range of possibilities from kitchen implements to knives. Guns were less likely to be used because they were really cumbersome. People didn't always have dry gunpowder. You have to load them. You have to go through a lot of you know ordeal to actually get your gun to the point where you can fire it. 
and you know things that were closer to hand were more likely to be used. And so they're concerned about that range of weapons. They weren't singularly focused on guns. And the idea there was any kind of weapon posed a threat. And so you dealt with the threat of violence and they weren't singling out guns as the only or primary or um, most dangerous thing that was involved in domestic violence cases. We're talking with Princeton University professor, legal history, Laura Edwards with us. Also, Pepperdine Law School associate professor, Jacob Charles. Both of their scholarship shows up in amicus briefs in these cases. Professor Charles, just a quick closing thought based on the historical expertise of Professor Edwards. I think the, um, the history and the contested nature of the history shows what the justices were getting at an argument today, which is it's really hard to do a constitutional test that requires you to plumb the depths of these archives and to understand intricacies and nuances that uh, legal scholars who are not trained historians have trouble uh, getting their heads around. And I think a couple of the justices were skeptical about the court's ability to do this. And so it will be interesting to see when they write this decision if they give some more guidelines for how to do this kind of historical inquiry. I want to thank you both so much for being with us. Jacob Charles of Pepperdine Law, Laura Edwards of Princeton, joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we'll talk with historian Tanisha Ford, author of Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. In Professor Ford's book, she details a whole history of very high-level fundraising for the civil rights movement that I had no idea existed. I mean, it's logical that it would have been there to fund all the expenses of running various civil rights activities, but it's all laid out here beautifully in the new book, Our Secret Society. We'll talk with the professor when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as our focus is the new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. The book is written by historian Tanisha C. Ford, professor of history and biography and memoir at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Her books include Dressed in Dreams, a Black Girl's Love Letter to the Power of Fashion, and Liberated Threads, Black Women, Style, and the Global Politics of Soul. Professor Ford, so good to have you with us today on Air Talk. 
Thank you for having me. As I had said uh, just prior to the break, I, I was totally ignorant of the fundraising apparatus and the skill, of course, required for those who worked in it to fund the civil rights movement. When did Molly Moon come onto your radar being such a central figure with a gift of bringing diverse peoples together and and high-ticket events to provide this funding? You know, Larry, like you, I had not heard her name until maybe a decade or so ago. I was a graduate student at the time working in the archives of the Schomburg Center and came across the name Molly Moon and thought, wow, that's a fabulous name. Um, I'm intrigued by this woman who seems to host these amazing social events in Harlem. And then I realized that there was always a dollar amount attached to her events as they were covered in the news. And I was like, oh, wow, these are fundraisers. These are civil rights movement fundraisers. She's a major fundraiser for the National Urban League. And I set on a path to uncover as much as I could about her life and also about the real cost of racial justice. And and that's something, as as you write about, you know, we don't think about that. We think about it as though this is an all-volunteer project without travel expenses, venue expenses, without people who need to support their families doing this work, organizing people for marches, job actions, etc. And give us a sense of how formidable a task that was to raise the money to do the work. You know, the first story I found about Molly Moon was written in, in 1961, um, and that was my entry point into this history. And of course, at this point, we have large-scale mass demonstrations across the country, sit-ins, freedom rides, and sure, all those things cost money. And I found that while there was a lot of historical coverage, both by academics, but also by public historians about those large scale events for the civil rights movement, no one was really talking about the money. No one was really talking about like, how much does it cost to rent a bus to you know allow students to travel down to the South to protest, to challenge Jim Crow segregation. So following the long arc of Molly Moon's career from the early 1940s, when she's engaged in her first Harlem-based fundraisers to support a local community arts center, to you know, her work in the late 1960s, where now the movement, we've had the March on Washington, and the movement is starting to morph into something that's really, you know, becoming about not just direct nonviolent action, but also, you know, the Black Power movement. I could see like how shift there were major shifts in schools of thought about how we should raise money and from whom. So some of her earlier fundraisers, we could see the grassroots fundraising base that came mostly from people within the African American community. To the time, by the time we get to the 1960s, I mean, the Rockefellers are involved. Um, the Ford Foundation becomes involved in the late 60s and early 1970s. You know, so massive amounts of money are being funneled into organizations like the NAACP and the National Urban League to support this growing movement for equal um, racial equality in the United States. I, I love the scenes that you set, which give such a sense of place and who's there for the event. And and I tie that to the um, jacket uh, cover photo of Molly Moon, because she has she has that look that very accomplished fundraisers and, and event uh, conveners have that sort of gravitas, but but friendly um, presentation. I have to think, you know, she where did where did she learn this social skill that was so central to raising these funds? She was glamorous indeed. She was the grand dame of Harlem, a woman who 
often made the society pages for her dress, being one of the best dressed women in New York City, for being a social leader. And, you know, but she came from humble roots. She wasn't born into a wealthy family herself. She was born into a very, you know, working class or working poor family in, in Jim Crow era Mississippi in 1907. She went to college at Meharry Medical School where she earned a degree in pharmacy. But like a lot of African-Americans in that time period who were graduating just as the, the nation and the world even were spiraling into the depths of the Great Depression, she thought that she had a greater role to play in civic society to support the cause of, of racial equality. And so in the 1930s, she takes her skills that she has honed in college she was, I found out she was a member of the social committee of her university. Um, she uses those skills and starts to apply them for, to the movement. And she develops these social graces along the way as her network expands to include artists, um, stars of stage and screen, musicians. I mean, it was nothing to see somebody like Billie Holiday at her events, writers like James Baldwin. She was good friends with Langston Hughes and also writer Dorothy West. So she just had a star-studded group of friends. And I think she she was such a, a master of self-reinvention that she was able to pull a little bit from each of those different social camps that yeah. she was committed to. And that came alive in the kind of events, the large-scale events that she hosted. You you write about the, the Beaux-Arts gala that she did, which provided for all different strata of society to be able to attend. But you, you say this um, um, was really the progenitor in many ways of like the Met Gala and the ultimate in Manhattan high society. For sure. You know, Molly Moon, she's not the first person to host a Beaux-Arts ball, which just basically means fine arts. You know, there are other people who who hosts these events, but she really takes from Black West Indian traditions of Carnival and also um, local balls that were popular in Harlem around that same time. So she's she's pulling from a Black source of inspiration. And in that that culture, costumes are so important. So when we think about like the Met Gala today, we think about the importance of the costumes, like seeing everybody walk the carpet and what are they wearing and how are they interpreting the theme? Well, every year Molly Moon had a theme for the Beaux-Arts Ball and people would come decked out in their costumes. And so there are great images in the book of people wearing these costumes. And there was a costumed um, competition where people could win prizes, um, based on what they were wearing. And another important piece that you mentioned here about these costumes was that they became the great social leveler that you could have, you know, say for example, Winthrop Rockefeller, and he could be photographed dancing with a domestic laborer. And so this was a ball that could bring these different elements of New York society together and the costumes became a way to level the playing field. We're talking with Tanisha C. Ford, professor at City University, New York, uh, at the Graduate Center. She's a historian and biographer. Her new book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. If you'd like to talk with Tanisha Ford, we're at 866-893-5722. You can also email us at adcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Professor Ford, I, you know, I, I felt like this is an area of black history that's, that's and maybe it's just because I haven't found the work, that's been rather underserved. And I think back to Lawrence Otis Graham's 
wonderful book, Our Kind of People, Inside America's Black Upper Class. And we interviewed him, gosh, it's you know been more than 20 years ago when his book came out. But it was such a riveting look at uh, a, an aspect of African-American culture with which you know, few of us had exposure. And and I wonder if if um, you have a hope that maybe your book would, you know, help further explore this important aspect of black culture. I'm so glad you mentioned the Graham book. It was such an inspiration for my book, as well as the documentary Eyes on the Prize. So mm-hmm. I like to say that this book is a blend of our kind of people meets Eyes on the Prize in that you're right. I mean, this brings us into a world that is so understudied. Um, the world of philanthropy, for one, and African-Americans' engagement with philanthropy and the rise of the nonprofit sector during the civil rights movement era. So I'd like to look at how class formation is informing the ways that African-Americans are are starting to think about their giving as it relates to the civil rights movement. So you have educated African-Americans who who have disposable incomes who are thinking like it is our civic duty to give money to organizations like the National Urban League and the NAACP. And so that's sure part of the conversation. And then I wanted to use Molly Moon, someone who moved between the black middle class and the black working classes to also think about how everyday working class African-Americans have also have a deep commitment to giving. And then what happens when we throw big foundation and corporate philanthropies into that mix? So I had an opportunity to dig around in the financial records of the National Urban League, for example, to learn more about their financial base. And I realized that that they're really receiving money from a constellation of givers. So people from $20 in the bank to people with $200,000 in the bank, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's really that part of American history that I want readers to walk away understanding that, you know, we as a nation are as strong as the, the, our commitment to mutual aid, right? So how we help and show up for one another, both in terms of our monetary giving, but also in terms of volunteering our time. We'll continue with Tanisha Ford, author of Our Secret Society, Molly Moon, and the glamour, money, and power behind the civil rights movement. Molly Moon was the president of the National Urban League's Guild, responsible for raising vast amounts of money to fund the civil rights movement, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Ford in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle talking with Tanisha C. Ford, author of Our Secret Society, Molly Moon, and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. And we have listener Heather and Whittier who uh, emailed, and I'm so glad because this uh, goes right into what I was going to ask next. And that was Molly Moon's background in Europe. Uh, Heather asked, did she spend time in Europe fundraising during the 50s? Many black creatives did at that time. You know, thank you for that question. Yes, Molly Moon did spend time in Europe, but it was in an earlier time period. She was in Europe in the 1930s. In fact, the book opens with her life in Moscow and then in Berlin in the early 1930s. And it's really where she starts to cut her teeth as a you know black intellectual, also as, a, um, as an activist. She hosts salons in her Berlin apartment, for example. 
But I think it's definitely right that even though Molly Moon wasn't necessarily using Europe as a fundraising base in the 1950s, many African-Americans were. And it was many of those people that were part of her peer group who were connected to that kind of work. So what I tried to do is trace this thread of connectivity between Black intellectuals and activists in the 1930s through the 1950s, utilizing an internationalist perspective to do so. All right. If you have questions for Professor Fort, you can ask them at 866-893-5722. You can also email them to us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. She was uh, very much what we would call a progressive today, um, very, very liberal. How did her political views align with those that might have been more moderate for civil rights? And then, as you mentioned earlier, this emerging in the later, well, mid-late 60s, um, more, um, uh, I don't know what the right term would be, but but less sort of, um, uh, you know, peaceful protest-oriented groups. So, yes, I mean, it was important. One thing I love, let me just say this. One thing I love about biography is that it allows you to trace the arc of a life so that you're not just entering into one particular moment, but you can see an evolution in that person. And Molly Moon, there was definitely an evolution in our politics. So we, when we encounter her in the early chapters of the book, she's definitely connected to, you know, the black far left and and the white left as well. You know, she's engaging in you know, ideas around socialism, as many people were during the Great Depression era, trying to find some kind of alternative to capitalism. Um, but by the time she starts working with the National Urban League and she forms the National Urban League Guild in the 1940s, she's now interacting with fiscal conservatives, with people who are religious conservatives, with people who um, have you are socially conservative. And she's trying to build these networks across race, across class. And in that way, she effaces some of her own politics, at least publicly, to adopt more of a racial integrationist approach to activism. So she's seen in the 1950s and 60s as more of a, a racial liberal. And to some of the younger black radicals like Stokely Carmichael and others, people who would go on to form the, the Black Panther Party, for example, people who represented Molly's generation of activists become seen as accommodationists or people who are willing to work within the system at a time when younger activists are saying the system won't save us. Working mm. within the system won't save us. And it's not just Black activists. I mean, there are young white radical activists as well who are adopting similar principles. So the book allows us to see how Molly changes over time and how her, her perceived policy, politics change over time as well. How did her marriage affect her work? She's married to the head of publicity for the National Urban League, so they're a power couple. How how did the two of them reinforce each other's work? I love their love story, both in terms of what I was able to find reading their cor correspondence, but also through interviews with people who knew them and interviews that I've listened to that were conducted um, in the 1970s where you can hear both of their voices and hear how they engage with one another. They were for sure what we would call today a power couple. He was a journalist by training who was one of the leading intellectuals in the United States in the early 1930s who went on to work in the White House under FDR's administration and then became the publicity director of the NAACP as Molly is ascending as a social worker, but also again, as the founder of this national 
National Urban League Guild that by the early 1960s has chapters across the country. And what I love about their relationship is that he was not intimidated by her. She was the far more outgoing, charismatic, vivacious, infectious personality, while he was deemed more of the intellectual, the introvert, but he was not intimidated by that at a time when women's career goals were stifled by sexism um, and gender-based biases in the workplace. He supported her ambition. And I love seeing that between a, a couple. And for me as an African-American woman, it was I was also heartened by the fact that this was, a, this was a Black couple who had this kind of very prominent love story. And so I wanted to bring that to life on the page as well. We're talking with the author of Our Secret Society, Molly Moon, and the glamour, money, and power behind the civil rights movement. A City University New York Graduate Center professor of history, Tanisha C. Ford. She's going to be at the Reparations Club bookstore coming up this Thursday evening at 7 o'clock. The bookstore is what I would call the cusp of the Crenshaw and West Adams district. She'll be there talking with writer and activist Darnell Moore. And uh, if you'd like to attend the event. It is open, but you need to RSVP with registration. You can go to the bookstore's website, rep.club. That's rep.club to RSVP for their website for the event uh, Thursday night coming up at 7 o'clock. Professor Ford, thank you very much for coming on and talking about Molly Moon and uh, all the different aspects of the civil rights movement about uh, which we we don't think so commonly uh, about these days. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, Tanisha Ford, our secret society, coming up next hour on Air Talk. It's day two of our five day series on veterans, all heading into this Veterans Day weekend. Today it's mental health we talk about, and we're looking forward to your calls if you're a veteran of military service. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. It's the second day of our five day series on veterans. Today, we're taking our entire second hour to focus on the mental health of veterans, transition to civilian life for those who have suffered traumatic stress, how they deal with it after their time back in the States after serving. 
We're going to be taking calls from listeners, and I'd like to hear from you, your experience regarding your mental health, your transition back to civilian life if you engaged in military service. Our number is 866-893-5722. If there were particular challenges that you faced, I would love to hear what that was like for you, some of the resources that might have been available to you that you used or or didn't avail yourself of, and how you've seen that journey in the time since your return from service. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Studies indicate about 7% of veterans will experience post-traumatic stress uh, disorder later in their life. That's only slightly higher than the civilian population. But PTSD uh, has been uh, an issue among many veterans who haven't sought treatment or, for those who did, haven't found helpful treatment. And this goes back all the way, of course, to our our, uh, modern-day understanding of it with Vietnam veterans. But, of course, it goes back to conflict long before that. Uh, I had a family member who served in World War I who came back with what we now call PTSD and sadly took his own life as a result of what he experienced in the Great War in Europe. So it's something that we've been aware of, of course, the uh, the challenges that, that uh, in combat or military service, even out of combat, uh, can provide. But we're going to be talking about some of the some of the resources available today. And joining us is Shauna Springer, chief psychologist at a company that provides treatments for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and traumatic brain injury. Stella is the name of the company. Uh, Shauna Springer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Larry. It's good to be here. Let's talk first about, um, you know, for veterans that that come back um, who might be extremely aware of the difficulty they're having transitioning or or things that occurred to them in service Mm -hmm. that might have been traumatic, but, but others who might not be as in touch with that, what are some of the things that veterans need to consider once their military service is done to assure their mental health? Transition is a punch in the gut, and I think sometimes we think about it as though it's like getting a new job, like it's about finding new coworkers, when in fact we need to ask ourselves and veterans need to understand that the real issue is how is it going to be to lose the family of people that I have served with that I would potentially be willing to die for in battle. And so the fundamental issue, Larry, is that transition is often an emotional amputation from people that they have come to love like family. And this affects everybody from every rank. Um, I've talked with leaders all the way up the chain, and military transition is one of the biggest challenges they have, even worse than some of the uh, combat traumas that they suffer. That period of transition is just really hard. Are there ways for people, once they've left military service, to stay connected with the people that they served with, to keep those relationships alive, even if they're living in different parts of the country, or some are still deployed, or some are still serving, and others uh, are back stateside? Are there vehicles that the military branches have to keep that going? There are some ways to keep in touch, but it's kind of the same problem that first responders have when they retire. 
there's kind of a sense of when you drive out of those gates for the last time, you can't get on base again in the military. And so you do lose your connection to your fellow service members to some degree. And kind of the story moves on without you um, with people that continue to deploy and go through rotations of service. So to some extent, um, you can keep in touch. A lot of people end up living in towns where there's a big military presence Mm -hmm. because they want to be surrounded by people who understand them and who share their culture. If they end up in a place where nobody else thinks like them, has had experiences like them, it can make transition even more difficult. What about... I just want people... Oh, go, go ahead. No, no, no. Please finish your thought. I'm sorry. I would just want people to know that there are organizations, Stella is one of them, um, but there are organizations that offer effective treatments for post-traumatic stress injury, and one of the biggest um, times of high trauma is around military transition. We're talking with Shauna Springer of Stella, where she's chief psychology, uh, psychologist. Excuse me. What about closeness to family and having friends out of the military? How important is that? The ability to reconnect with family upon um, transitioning out of service and and uh, connecting again with friends. It's very important, Larry. It's a good question. I, I think it's vital for people to not just be able to have genuine and deep connections with other military service members, to be able to sort of commonly connect and and share experiences with those who haven't served, it's critical for successful transition. So when I wrote my book, Beyond the Military, with Jason Roncaroni, um, he was a leader in the 101st Airborne. Uh, he uh, wrote that book with me to help people really bridge to other people that didn't serve. And we see that as essential to making a successful transition. Again, I would love to hear from veterans of military service, whether in combat or not. Please share your experience about transitioning after you uh, ended military service, things that worked well for you, things that didn't, resources you found helpful and ones that you didn't, what your experience was like, particularly from a mental health, and if you had traumatic experiences to deal with, how you did that. Uh, Shauna, what are the ways that, you know, some vets who've gone through horrific experiences Uh, seem not to have PTSD, and then others who've gone through terrible experiences, this is a lifelong issue that they deal with. Why why do we think that is? It's complicated. It's a great question. So a lot of people that go into military and first responder professions also have childhood trauma. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. Um, People sometimes go into the military because they're looking for a place where there's accountability, safety, rules, structures. They also um, are comfortable with being calm in chaos because they've learned that in their families growing up. And they also sometimes are looking for the protector, looking to become the protector they wish they had had. So when we're talking about how trauma affects people, we have to go back before the military and think about did they have experiences in their early childhood that perhaps inoculated them against some forms of trauma in some cases, or maybe sensitized them to other forms of trauma that they experience in the military and beyond. And so that's why you really have to understand the individual that's sitting in front of you and really look at the story behind the story. Because for so many warriors I've supported, it's not the sort of Hollywood script of there was a bomb and it, it killed people and that was the trauma. It's often these other things like moral injuries, survivor guilt, 
grief that's never been addressed, childhood trauma, that's really the thing that's eating them alive. How do you, so that, those are the things that we have to get to. And, and how do you help them get out of a, an assessment or self-criticism that this is a moral failing? Because if they look at colleagues who seem to be handling the same circumstances that they did, let's say in a combat situation, then, then how do you help them not to feel like they're defective because they're dealing with PTSD? That is a problem that sometimes people can feel like they're unique and they can feel broken. I I would want people to know that just because other people aren't projecting their challenges doesn't mean they have those challenges. Again, I've worked with military leaders of all men and women of all ranks in the military and what people project warriors are very good. They're professionally good at compartmentalizing their hidden pain, but so many of us to include all humans, because trauma is a human issue, not a warfighter issue, have this pain that's eating us from the inside out. So to me, I don't know that I believe that what someone shows on the outside is actually what they're feeling on the inside. I have to have a conversation with them. And really what I want them to know is that, you know, a lot of these challenges are very common. Thoughts about suicide are very common for warfighters and for first responders because they deal with life and death and they see a lot of it. So just like medical school students think they might have all the diseases that they're studying, when (laughs) you're steeped in something, you start to think about it. So it's a question of not necessarily if you have dark thoughts, but when you do, can you get traction with that mental warfare? Do you have the right treatments that are innovative and effective that work in the right sequence? And do you have the insights you need to really understand mental warfare and get traction so you can heal from it? We're talking with the chief psychologist at Stella, which is a provider of treatments for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and traumatic brain injury. Shauna Springer is with us. Again, I'd like to hear from you if you are uh, someone who uh, engaged in military service to share with us what your journey was like when you ended military service uh, from a psychological standpoint, what you found most difficult, what are some of the things that you'd briefly like to share with Air Talk listeners on this this morning, day two of our five-day series on veterans. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. If you're a family member of someone who served in the military and you've had particular challenges in being helpful to that family member upon their return from service, we're at 866-893-5722. You can get expert advice or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Also with us is Marine Corps veteran Diego Garcia. He entered Iraq in March of 2003 during the initial invasion, and he is the the founder of the nonprofit Semper Utilis, aimed at employing disabled and unhoused veterans in the recycle and upcycling industry. Diego, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Larry. So just briefly share with us, what what was it like for you when your time in the Marine Corps ended? Um, well, it, uh, Shauna got it all right. It, it was a punch in the gut when we, when we got out. Um, I There definitely was some emotional amputation. Um, I very quickly figured out that I didn't necessarily want to be around my friends. Uh, I didn't want to be around my family. I felt love, but I didn't feel comfortable being in group mm-hmm. settings with them. Um 
they would all want to talk about my experiences and without me knowing, um, it would just trigger my anxiety and then just having a simple conversation. I just start sweating profusely, um, even in a cold room. I'd be covered in sweat, you know, with chills and but it just it would trigger something within me. Um it took me a while to figure out that I did, like Shauna said, I did need some uh, genuine connections with other veterans. Um, I joined the VFW. I joined the American Legion. I joined uh, the Marine Corps League. Um, I joined Disabled Veterans were, were of America. Were these helpful to, to socialize with other veterans? Certainly, certainly. I felt more comfortable around a you know older Vietnam veteran, older Korean veteran uh, than I did with my cohorts. Um there was just a unspoken bond already. You know, if I told them like, oh, you know, I haven't been sleeping well, they knew exactly, you know, what I was feeling. If, if I tell them about my depression or about my anxiety, they automatically knew, you know, what I was feeling uh, versus if I tried to talk to my friends, you know, at the time when I got out, I was 21, 22. Um, you can't talk to a, a normal 22 year old about severe depression and anxiety yeah, yeah. they just don't get it they don't understand um and going to these organizations like the vfw like the american legion you know it, it wasn't like if i was going to to a therapist or a psychiatrist you know that, that just kind of wants to dig in and and, and, and didn't feel of, like work it didn't feel like work yes it was just yeah. bonding with with other humans that made me feel normal yeah i want to go back to what you said about when when friends would ask you to talk about experiences uh, in the military, and you said you'd start sweating and you'd have. Um, can you describe what was, was anything going through your mind about that, or was this like an uh, autonomous response? You're just, your body kind of took over, or did you have thoughts as you were being asked to recount these things? It was, it was spontaneous. My body would just take over. Body just responded. Just responded. Even if I try to hide it or not try to think. You didn't have the choice. To do, yeah. yeah, I had no choice. My my body would just choice. act on its own. Um, everything from uh, sweating profusely uh, to my my eyebrow twitching to just I can't stop moving my leg. I'm just extremely restless. Um, it was uncontrollable for a very long time. Anxiety and depression ruled my life. Did So when you were in the social settings with fellow vets like the VFW and the other groups, did you feel like you were able to talk about some of the more difficult aspects of your service, or did you still keep much of that even with fellow veterans under wraps? Oh, no. It's very easy to talk to other veterans about our experiences. Um, mm -hmm. Most of us joke about it. You know, so if I'm telling a civilian about my experiences and I'm laughing or I'm kind of joking about it, they're looking at me like... They'd be appalled. What, yeah, how exactly. could you... How's that funny? How's that funny? Exactly. But with other veterans, um, they understand that's just our coping mechanism, you know, to kind of make light of, of whatever mm -hmm. we went through. Um, it's really the only way we could deal with it is by just kind of making light of the situation, even though it sounds pretty immoral to, you know... But but it it goes along with the culture of coping as as, as you said. Now back in two thousand five, when uh, your service with the Marine Corps ended, were there much in the way of resources? Did the VA have you know? Could you call like one number at the VA and they they get a group for you to go to or things like that? No, Larry. Uh, back in two thousand five, the the VA was 
was, mm-hmm. was much different than it is now. There's a lot more resources now. There's a lot more focus on uh, meeting the veteran where they're at versus in 2005 when I went in, they, they wanted me to jump through all their hoops uh, in order for me to get service. So, for example, one of the very first things I realized when, after coming home is my mind wouldn't shut off, especially at night. I couldn't sleep. I would literally lay in bed all night, eyes closed, still as can be, almost meditating, but my mind is just running and running and running and running. And it was very difficult to maintain a career when you're not getting when any you sleep. sleep yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And we go a few days, we go a week, we go a month like this, and then it really starts to affect our depression, our anxiety, um, and just about every aspect of our life. Well, because sleep deprivation makes it even harder to cope with what's going on because you just your brain isn't even functioning right. Definitely. You're, not you're so you're so uh, exhausted. Yet, Anna, but let me bring back Shauna Springer, uh, chief psychologist at Stella. With what Diego is is describing, is that like a a fight or flight kind of a thing? Like like he's in a fight or flight mm-hmm. mode as he can't sleep, or is that something else? Yeah, no, exactly. It's it's part of having post-traumatic stress injury. We talk about it as an injury because it's predictable and it could be healed if you have the right treatment and the right insights. Um, that kind of symptom is one of the what we call hyperarousal symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress exposure. So that you can't sleep, um, you're hypervigilant all the time, you have um, sometimes anxiety attacks, you get suddenly a surge of anger or irritability that seems to come from nowhere. Uh, sometimes there's a startle response and you can't concentrate. You read the same line of a book over and over again. Those are exactly, as you say, Larry, fight or flight system that can't, it can't throttle down. So guys and, and women tell me that they feel like a muscle car that can't throttle down. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, if they can't sleep, they're not operational. And then it slides quickly into depression. It slides quickly into I'm broken. And then very shortly after that, if they don't get effective, efficient care, then they can become suicidal when their symptoms are not handled. So that's why we um, stood up Stella in 2020. And we've we've treated 8,000 people, many Marines. I'm actually treating a master sergeant from 2-7 on Friday. Um, And he's permitted me to share this because he wants to reach other Marines like Diego, um, good Marines that, that are deserving of this care. 2-7 2-7 was profiled in the New York Times as having the highest suicide rate in the Marine Corps, just for context. And so their master sergeant is coming here to sell in Chicago, where I am, and we're going to take care of him on uh, Thursday and Friday right. this week. Because it's an injury, and it can be healed. We're talking with Shauna Springer, chief psychologist of the provider uh, of treatment, Stella. Also with us, Diego Garcia, Marine Corps veteran from 2001 to 2005, uh, was in uh, Iraq in March 2003 during the initial invasion. And he started a nonprofit, Semper Utilis, aimed at employing disabled and unhoused veterans in the recycling and upcycling industry. We'll take listener calls when we come back. Again, if you are a veteran of military, military service and you're comfortable sharing uh, what your mental health journey has been after the end of your service, we'd appreciate it. Or if you're a family member of someone who has had a difficult go or things that have been particularly helpful on your family member's mental health journey after military service, we're at 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Back in a minute.
It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We have more guests who are going to be joining us on today's veteran segment, part of a five-day series on matters of importance for veterans today. It's mental health and dealing with the aftermath of trauma. Uh, with us uh, is uh, caller uh, Mikaela, who's an Army combat veteran who served in Iraq from 2004 to 2005. She's now with the VA's Office of Outreach and Community Relations in uh, what's called the Veterans Experience Office. Mikaela, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. What what for you personally was the diff- most difficult adjustment when you were back stateside? Well, so for when I got back from Iraq in 2005, uh, I was really young, and um, I think America was not, and, and DOD and VA was not really prepared to deal with a young woman combat veteran at that time. So when I would go for services, I felt like I wasn't a veteran at the time sometimes because I'd always be referred to as a spouse. And then I also felt weak for needing services after being in combat. Well, and being a woman, do you, you did you feel, do you think, additional pressure perhaps because um, not wanting to, to really let on to others the challenges you were dealing with after your time uh, in service? Yes, there there weren't a lot of services at that time available to women veterans. I mean, the Pentagon didn't even recognize us in combat roles yet. All right. And with the office that you're with now, what are the services that are available for veterans, in, including women vets? So we have a, a comprehensive health, uh, women veterans health care services available with women veteran health provider and anything that the VA isn't able to provide. And we go outside to community partners. And that changed uh, in about 2016 under the Obama administration and has been extended with under each administration since. All right. Very good. Uh, Mikaela, thank you so much. Appreciate your being with us. That's Mikaela Montoya, Army combat veteran who served in Iraq with the VA's Office of Outreach and Community Relations. Again, I'd love to hear from you at 866-893-5722. If you're a veteran of military service, what your mental health journey was like after your service came to an end, what was helpful for you, what not. Uh, Diego, I want to go back to, to talk about something that you were explaining, you know, coming back how you had friends who couldn't really relate, and they were wanting to hear your experiences. You know, it's a very small percentage of Americans now who serve in the all-volunteer military, and you've got many families um, with no one who has military service at all in the family. So a big cultural difference. And I wonder if you can speak to that, because this is probably very different from previous generations of Americans who almost every family had someone who had served in the military. Right. Um, <clears throat> there's there's definitely a, a, a big cultural difference between a lot of the, a lot of the friends that I had uh, so when I joined, it was actually on, uh, before September 11, 2001. So I joined when we were in peacetime. Uh, and I was actually at MEPS getting ready to, to go to boot camp to sign my contract uh, when the planes hit on September 11, 2001. So joining in peacetime and joining wartime was definitely kind of <clears throat> um, a big mindset 
that a big yeah big mindset that I had to change. Uh, so when I got back, since all my friends, you know, we weren't used to war. A lot of us don't remember the Vietnam War. Probably don't have too many family members that served in the Vietnam War. So a lot of my friends didn't have someone that they knew that they, that, that that was at war. So they just were curious and wanted to ask all the questions yeah. and how many people did you kill? How'd you kill them? Like, what's this? What's that? Um, and it's not something that personally I wanted to talk to because it's not like I had pride in 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 a lot of what happened. Um, a lot of service members don't take pride in what they had to do while being out there. Um, so we just kind of want to forget about it and move on. Um, so to have someone that's completely oblivious to what we might be feeling inside because of what happened uh, while we were deployed and they're just prodding and asking, you know, just yeah. stirring well, what, up. Is there a way that could be helpful if people asked about your experience or do you just feel like people really shouldn't stir that up with returning veterans? It takes a while for a veteran to feel comfortable with somebody and start sharing their experiences. Um, so no, it's not a good idea, in my opinion, to just bring it up right off the bat. Like, hey, I haven't seen you in 10 years. How was war? You know, um, but it becomes easier uh, for us to share experiences when we feel someone actually cares, uh, someone's actually listening to us, uh, and they're not just, uh, you know, looking for stories with gore. You know, um, when we feel like they actually care about what, going on within us and, and our and, um, our struggles, it, it becomes a little easier for us to open up. So centered on you as opposed to centered on the events, it Correct. sounds like you're saying. Yes. So that they're empathetic, they're really, that anything that you, it's, it's with that front and center how this has affected you. Right. All right. Uh, let me bring into the conversation Elliot Ackerman, who was a former Marine Corps Special Ops, served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's author of the memoir Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning. Elliot Ackerman, thank you very much for joining us on Air Talk. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'd, I'd like to hear you elaborate, please, more on this civilian uh, military divide, which has probably never been as big in this country as it is now. How do you see that affecting the the challenge for returning veterans? I think most fundamentally it uh, affects the way that the country fights wars. So, you know, every war that the U.S. has fought all the way back to its founding, there's sort of been a construct that you need to sustain the war in turn, really broadly speaking, in two ways, you know, blood and treasure. Who's going to fight the war and how are you going to pay for it? And, uh, you know, if we look back through our history, you know, from the Civil War to the Second World War to Vietnam, there's always been a little bit of a different construct. With the war on terror, the construct was the, the blood it came from our all-volunteer military. And the treasure came from deficit spending. You know, there's never been a war tax uh, on those wars. And the result has been that the American people have been like largely anesthetized to the cost of these wars. I mean, unless you're serving in the military or have someone close to you who's serving, you don't really under know that these wars are going on. They don't affect us. So they've just sort of played in the background of military life of life for 20 years. I think that more than anything has just created this very wide uh, divide in society between the 1% who serve and those who don't. 
uh, and in a you know in a democracy that's you know that's not, that's not necessarily healthy, uh, and I would say you know could actually be pretty dangerous. What about the question I, I asked Diego Garcia about you know what was helpful for him in terms of people asking him questions about his military experience? What were your thoughts on that when you returned from your five tours in Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, I'm I'm you know very happy for people to ask me about my military experience. Um, you know, for me, oftentimes the thing that felt much less empowering would be if someone would say to me like, oh, I, I can't imagine what you went through over there. Because um, to me, that always seemed like a cop-out. Like, um, you know, yeah, you can probably imagine what I went through over there. You know, most people in their lives have, you know, loved somebody and lost them or been through some type of traumatic experience, even if it isn't combat. Um, and so a little work, you know, they can they can imagine, you know, what we went through over there. And I think that, when you say to someone, I can't imagine what you went through over there, um, you know, it really means that that you, the veteran, have, through some experience you've had overseas, um, become in some way altered uh, and unrecognizable to a civilian from the person you were before. So you were, you know, civilian who was recognizable. You went to war and you had these experiences that made you unrecognizable. So if a person says they can't imagine what you went through over there, in some ways they're saying, um, I I no longer recognize you, and so you kind of never get to come home. I actually think that by imagining what veterans have gone through, by incorporating veterans' experiences into the broader culture, that is actually how we bring people home, uh, as opposed to sort of uh, you know, you know, offering appreciation oh. but not really engaging with what those experiences were. Elliot, how would you see us doing that, incorporating this more into um, – home home life and 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 so that we are faced more with uh, what actually happens in war well so i think most fundamentally the way that you do that is what i kind of alluded to before is how we wage war you know going to war is the most uh, sacred thing our society does we offer up our sons and daughters uh to be killed uh in the prosecution of some type of a cause so that's something the whole society should do and when you look back in our history, when the whole country has gone to war, it's made it much, much easier for veterans to come home because we're returning to the societies that sent us. Um, but that being said, in you know, these particularly world wars, the war on terrorism um, that has been fought by a much smaller portion of the country, you know, I think it's through just community engagement, really, you know, talking to veterans, asking not not othering veterans, not treating them as though there's some uh, mm -hmm. special category that you have to walk on eggshells around. I think that, uh, you know, we are your sons and your daughters and we've come home and uh, and treat us as such. We're talking with Elliot Ackerman, Marine Corps Special Ops over uh, five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, author of the memoir Places and Names on War, Revolution and Returning. When we come back, we have have listener calls from military veterans. It's day two of our five-day series on veterans today focused on mental health. We also have another uh, guest who will be joining us, clinical psychology professor at University of Texas San Antonio. Sandra Morissette uh, is a specialist in writing exposure therapy and the benefits it can have for returning veterans. We'll talk with her when we come back in just 90 seconds. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Day two of our five-day series on veterans today. Mental health is our focus. And listener Jose in Anaheim says, uh, I'm a former Marine, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and lost my unit uh, in an IED. Being the only survivor filled me with guilt when I went for help uh, to the VA. I wasn't able to receive it. I needed surgery that the VA wouldn't cover, had to go to a private hospital for a leg amputation. My experience is one filled with red tape and little help. That's Jose in Anaheim. Sinclair in Laguna Beach says, my case is a bit different. I'm an immigrant to the U.S. From, from uh, 1983 to 1990, I worked as a counterintelligence officer in Africa and Europe. Once I moved to the U.S., I found out a CIA operative reported over 100 people who worked with the U.S. to their respective governments and that these people were being killed. I was one of those names. That's when all my problems started. I couldn't remember my name. I couldn't hold my head up, couldn't recognize my family. But because I wasn't officially in the military, I didn't qualify for medical care. And I've been struggling with that ever since. That's Sinclair in Laguna Beach. Joining us now is Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Texas, San Antonio, Sandra Morissette. Uh, She specializes in military health, post-deployment recovery and trauma. Professor Morissette, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I know that one of the modalities that you, you frequently use is writing exposure therapy. What is that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And just to to answer that question with a little bit more broad perspective, which I think is important for both veterans and family members who might be listening, is that there are really good evidence-based treatments that ha- we've conducted multiple studies on. And written exposure therapy is one of the treatments that's recommended by the Department and of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs Clinical Practice Guidelines. And um, what's exciting about that particular treatment is it's very brief, five sessions. People might hear that and be like, wow, really? Um, They've conducted multiple studies at this point and including comparing written exposure therapy to best practices like cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure. And really what the nature of the treatment involves is writing um, in detail about their people's deepest thoughts and emotions um, related to what happened to them. 
And the idea is um, to help them to learn that their thoughts aren't dangerous, that they can tolerate what's often high distress when writing about um, some of their memories, um, to um, realize that as they write about what happened to them, their distress decreases. And then that sort of opens a window for them to develop new thinking and how what the event meant to them in their life. I'm not surprised to hear this as effective. I think there are many of us who've who've written about uh, other aspects of our life that might be challenging or difficult and and felt a sense of relief in in bringing that out and the actual process of just writing that. What do we think neurologically goes on, particularly for individuals who have been in particularly high-stress circumstances? Yeah, I'm not sure that we know what the neurological mechanisms are, but my experience clinically working with patients is that when they write it out, it becomes more of a story and the pieces come back together. And what we hear from veterans and and other people who've experienced trauma is that often their memories about what happened are fragmented. And so um, from, from my perspective, what I've heard anecdotally from patients is that they feel like their story comes together in a more, um, in a clearer way from which they can develop meaning. Uh, Elliot Ackerman, uh, you've, you've written about your experiences, and, and I know that's professional, so not necessarily in the same context as writing exposure therapy, but revisiting places um, where uh, you were deployed and, and writing about that. Has that had a therapeutic effect for you? say it had a therapeutic effect necessarily i think it was uh you know it was interesting to go back and kind of check in with uh, uh you know a story that was ongoing i mean you know i went back to iraq in 2016 right after isis had rolled through so i wouldn't say that was necessarily therapeutic um but it was you know it was it was so certainly uh interesting to kind of be back in those places where that i had fought and to kind of understand the, the way the conflict was going on um but you know i've heard that for many veterans kind of you know, not necessarily even exclusively writing, but just, you know, engaging in the arts, engaging in creating something, even if it's a business, um, can be just a way to come home. And I, I, I look just anecdotally at many of my peers, um, many of whom have gone into very creative fields. And when asked about it, I actually think it's not surprising that people who spent so much of their younger years uh, engage in acts of destruction would in their older years want to be engaged in acts of creation. Let's talk with listener Julian in Westmont. Julian, uh, please share with us about your separation from military service. I understand you served from 2000 to 2008. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was it like for you? Uh, it, yeah, there's de- definitely uh, some of what I'm hearing uh, so far on the show as far as uh, not being able to um <clears throat> assimilate back into culture very very well um but i found that reconnecting with um fellow veterans has been really helpful so obviously the va is a great tool for that and uh i i've had a really good experience with the va so far i was uh reluctant to to go see anybody at the VA until somebody who uh was in iraq with me um I went to work for the VA and, you know, showed, kind of just showed me the way. 
That's nice. Now, what about um, getting employed and all? Um, how challenging was that for you, or did you find you were able to get work uh, pretty soon after returning? Uh, yeah, work work has never been a problem for me. Um, I kind of rely on it for my mental health. So, um, but I, I I was also a mechanic for the for the army, so quite different from um, maybe some of the PTSD that um, infantrymen uh, undergo. So um, yeah, employment is very important for my mental health, and um, and I think that if you know for veterans who have a hard time. Uh, keeping and or or gaining employment and keeping it, that's uh, that's something that the VA should definitely help with. Julian, thanks very much. Appreciate you being with us. Crystal in Santa Ana, thank you for joining us. Um, I, I understand that both of your parents were in the Air Force. Um, please share with us what their transition experience was like. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I think for my mom, it was. Um, she's very practical minded. And so it was very, it's very easy for her to go from being in the guard to being at home. She was also um, a reservist. So she she worked once a month um, on the weekends and she did her annual training once a year. So I think she was closer to home. So I think it was easier for her. Um, I think, I think my dad still struggles. Um, it's not so severe that he requires help from the VA, but um, he does talk about how he feels like being in the military, there's a mission. You accomplish the mission, yeah. that's your goal, and it's really easy. Like, everything's thought out. Um, and coming back here, I think he struggles with just feeling like, okay, well, what am I doing? What's my purpose now? Like. Yeah, and let me. Yeah, hold hold that thought, please, Crystal, because Diego Garcia is with us in studio, a Marine Corps veteran. How big of uh, importance was that for you, finding a sense of mission like you'd had in the military? It was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was very important. Uh, a lot of times when we when I got when I got out, I felt like I didn't have a purpose in life anymore. Uh, the purpose in, in the Marine Corps is very easy, you know, to train, to go out there and do our job. But once we come back and we start doing these mundane jobs. Um, it doesn't feel like we have much purpose in life. Like it doesn't feel like uh, we're fulfilling our true potential like we were in the in the military. So when we get out and we don't have a satisfying career and we don't have uh, a satisfying purpose in life, you know, if we're not a father or if we're not a husband or if, you know if we're not something along those lines, we kind of lose our way. We don't well, know what to do. And did that lead you into founding the nonprofit, you think, that, that definitely. you wanted someplace to express that purpose in the world? Definitely. I, I want to give veterans a purpose in life um, again, and that's that would be to save our environment, to you know keep plastics from, from ending up in the landfill, keep plastic from ending up in our oceans, and recreating something uh, out of what most people call trash. Diego, by the way, is the founder of the nonprofit Semper Utilis, uh, which employs disabled and unhoused veterans in the recycle and upcycling industry. We're going to take a brief break. We'll continue with more listeners joining us on Air Talk with their experiences of either family members or themselves, military service, and some of the mental health challenges that can come post service uh, for those who've been a variety of uh, circumstances. 
circumstances while in a branch of the military. It's 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Day two of our five-part series devoted to veterans today. It's mental health that's the focus. And we've had so many terrific guests over the course of, uh, of this hour conversation. But let me bring in another listener call. Dennis in Laverne, a Marine Corps veteran from 1994 to 2004. Dennis, thank you for calling us. Please share your experience of, of dealing with your mental health post-service. Um, well, when I got out, um, it was extremely hard to, I guess you could say, adjust the simple fact that um, I got I, I was injured uh, while out, uh, out on deployment and I was sent home early uh, the folks that I knew um, in my unit were still in country and they I had to be medically discharged and Coming back home, honestly, I was focused on thinking more about them and how are they doing and if they're okay. And that really, um, it was really stressful. And uh, I want to say probably within a year or so, um, my good friend Jean uh, Ramirez ended up passing. And I just remember getting his, like, that phone call about him passing and just thinking to myself, like, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I even back home? You know? And so um, it, it, it was definitely uh, extremely hard. And then trying to seek um, mental health uh, help was something that honestly uh, wasn't really available. It, it, it wasn't, as the last uh, Marine said, uh, you know, the VA isn't like what it, what it is today where I can go in and get mental health. Before, it was just kind of like, oh, you need mental health? I think we, we can get you in sometime in a year or two. Wow. What, so what was helpful for you, Dennis? Um, what was really helpful for me was <clears throat> uh, meeting up with other uh, uh, veterans, and we just started having conversations about uh, our experiences and uh, what it was like as far as coming back home, what do we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes even just having barbecues or grills and just hanging out with each other can be extremely therapeutic. Yeah, Diego was talking about this earlier with with spending time with other veterans and, and how it it really uh, helped in the transition. Yes, most definitely. And uh, I'm a professor now uh, at San Bernardino Valley College. And uh, uh, being a professor and being a veteran now, I'm any of uh, any and all of my veteran students, I'm always reaching out to them, uh, trying to encourage them uh, not only to pursue their education, but also uh, just being a helpful ear to them and saying, hey, look, 
you're going through anything, if you're overly stressed at school, please let me know so I can send you is like to the right people or at least it's like let me guide you as i can tell you what my yeah. experiences were through that same you know basically through, through my experiences showing them that it's okay if if you're overstressed you know sometimes school sometimes needs to take a back seat but mm-hmm. it's okay because i'm willing to work with you in order for you to just stay in school you know be productive and let's find an avenue for you. Dennis, I appreciate your call so much. Thank you for sharing your experience and about becoming a professor at San Bernardino Valley College and uh, and everything else. Really, really appreciate it. Let me go back to University of Texas, San Antonio, professor of clinical psychology, Sandra Morissette. You know, for, for some vets who might be listening, who have been dealing with some of these issues, maybe even off and on for a number of years, um, it, I assume it's never too late to get help. I think that's right. I think we can't give up and just say, oh, this happened, you know, we, it was a war theater from Vietnam or whatnot, or very, very long time ago, 20 years now in terms of the post 9-11 wars. Um, and we do have some evidence that suggests that those veterans respond to treatment just as well as other veterans. So it's really important um, for them not to give up. And and I'd also add to it, there's been a lot of discussion by, by the speakers and guests about, you know, having a mission. And I think that's really important in terms of student veterans going back to university. That's an opportunity to help them reset missions. And that's a really um, important thing for me to try to help those student veterans thrive as they're trying to figure out what next. All right. I want to thank all of you so much. Uh, Just terrific expert guests on the program today. That's Sandra Morissette, professor, University of Texas, San Antonio. Earlier, we heard from Shauna Springer, chief psychologist at the mental health care provider, Stella. Uh, Diego Garcia, who's been with me in studio today. Diego, thanks so much for coming in for this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Marine Corps veteran and founder of Semper Utilis, a nonprofit organization, which that translates as always useful. My thanks to Elliot Ackerman, author of the memoir, Places and Names on War Revolution and Returning, former Marine Corps Special Ops, five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan for him. We thank all of our guests for joining us and the terrific listener calls as well. Thank you. I'm sorry I didn't have time to take all of the calls. There's some people who waited uh, a half hour and we just didn't have time. But I appreciate so much you taking the time to try and share your story. Stay tuned to NPR's Here and Now comes up next. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10 or 9, excuse me, as our series on veterans continues. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.